Hey there, this is Pastor Bob from Gateway Community Church in Washougal, Washington, and you are listening to a podcast of a sermon preached here at Gateway on the weekend of February 28th. Uh, At the beginning of this sermon, we're showing a video that is a little bit hard uh, to understand if you're not actually seeing the video, which of course you're not because you're listening to it on a podcast. So we have uh, included the audio. It's a It's basically a doctor who's doing an exam, and every now and then he looks away from the patient and talks to the camera. Uh, We've put a link for this uh, where you found this podcast, and we'll put one um, on our Facebook page as well. So I would suggest you might want to go back and watch the video and then listen to the sermon. Either way, we hope that you are blessed by this message as we think about uh, fear and uh, an antidote that Jesus gives us for dealing with anxiety. Enjoy. Any unintentional weight loss recently? Unexplained tiredness, anything like that? Mm, not, not really. Okay. They don't tell you in medical school about the fear. You learn it. The hard way. Have you had any change in vision, new headaches or anything like that since you fainted? Occasionally, uh, but not since I passed out before. They tell you in residency, when you hear hooves, think horses, not zebras. But sometimes the hooves are zebras, though, and you miss it. And if you screw up, it's a matter of life or death. That, that's when the fear sets in. So I want to do a brain MRI just to rule out anything serious. Okay. Okay. I'm sure that it's an isolated incident, probably low blood sugar, dehydration, something like that. Okay. And I also uh, I want to do some blood work just so that we can get a better picture of what's going on behind the scenes. Sure. Okay. You put on your shirt and your shoes. People come to me for help. They want to know what's wrong. They want to know what I'm going to do to fix it. Everybody talks about choices, but at the end of the day, they want me to make the choice for them. They just plain want me to fix them. That's when I have to be infallible. That's when I have to know everything. So I order tests to make sure they don't miss anything. It's not so much that I don't want to get sued. It's I don't want to be responsible for another person's death. Pressure's immense. You have no idea. I mean, all I've got is what I know, and that's what I put into the work. And, and, and what happens if that person doesn't get better? What happens if none of this stuff works? What happens at the worst case if the person dies? Right? Then I have to go to the family, and I have to tell them, okay, I gave you my best effort, but, you know, I'm sitting here, and I'm like, did I? And that's when you start to second-guess everything that you do. Okay, so the, uh, the front office will set up an MRI appointment. Okay. The lab's right next door. They'll have a form for you to fill out. Perfect. And we'll have the results in about a week. Perfect. Hey. Okay. Thanks, Doc. It's really nice meeting you. Yeah. All right, likewise. Okay. Take care. All right. Haven't been able to sleep a night for five years without a sleeping aid. Fears become another person in my marriage. So I'm a partner in my practice. It's a wall that I put up between me and everybody else. Maybe you're a parent. You might know a little bit about that. Maybe you're married and there's some fear involved there. You uh, might have a job. 
got some fear there. Maybe as a friend, as a neighbor, as a relative, maybe as one who provides for your family. I mean, there's so many things to be afraid of, if you think about it. What are you afraid of? Like right now, as you just think about life, what, what are you afraid of? What makes you anxious? What kind of gets sometimes between you and living faithfully for God? What keeps you up at night? We're going to talk about that tonight in this passage. And we're going to start, uh, as, we, as we often start in Scripture, and that is just kind of being up front. Exposing your fear. Admitting your fear. Talking about your fear. And tonight we're looking at a passage about this. In fact, we're going to kind of start at the end, if you will. In verse 32, Jesus kind of wraps up what we're going to look at tonight by saying this. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now he says fear not, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but that, that phrase, those two words, fear not, are the most frequently, it's the most frequently used command in the Bible. Fear not. That phrase appears more than any other command. Now, when you think about it, the Bible was written over like 2,000 years with 40 plus authors and, and written in, you know, all sorts of situations in different nations, and yet it seems like fear is this constant theme of the human condition. So when we talk about fear, what are, we, what are we talking about? Well, the word for fear there in the Greek is phobao, and it means to frighten or be frightened, to be alarmed, to be afraid. Um, when we think about fear in more of a kind of a clinical sense, it's our, we often talk about it as our response to danger, and that danger can be real or perceived. It doesn't even have to be real in order for us to be afraid. I was looking every year, you know, there's always all these... Uh, all these studies that are done on, on the top 10 lists. And according to one of the studies I looked at in 2015, the top 10 fears of Americans were, you can see if you relate to any of these, terrorism, um, poverty, that's a big one, just being afraid of running out of money, right? Being afraid of not being able to pay for the bills, not, not be able to put food on the table, pay the mortgage. Are you ever afraid of that, being poor? Uh, being alone is one of them, you know, being alone, being single. Uh, rejection is another one uh, that maybe we don't want to admit, but we don't want to be rejected. Unemployment is one. Um, here's one. Uh, we're afraid of the unknown. Like, who would have thought of that? <laughs> That's kind of a broad category there. Um, we're afraid of identity theft. We're afraid of ridicule. Uh, we're afraid of, of the, in the top 10, um, one of them is public speaking. So like, I have a job apparently that not too many people are fond of. And um, death. Death seems to always make the list. But here's the thing. Phil, uh, fear doesn't have to be real. It doesn't even have to be rational in order for us to be afraid of things. For instance, so here are, here are a few. Um, there's so many of them. I, so I'm not even going to try to say this. Aracta, but yeah, I don't even know. Any, anyone know what that is? Anyone? It's a, this, is a, this is a clinical way. It's a fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. It's, it's an actual thing. In fact, when I first read it, I thought that is not true. And I looked it up and it is uh, sesquipedalophobia. Anyone know what that is? Any guesses? It's a fear of long words. Right? So how about this? A few of you might be able to figure this out just by homophobia. Anyone? No, it's a fear. David, can you figure it? It's a fear of sermons. 
It's a fear of sermons, homophobia, right? Which you obviously are not afraid of sermons. But of course, it doesn't even have to be rational. It doesn't even have to be real. Now, there's kind of a, several ways that we can read when, when Jesus says fear not. One way is just kind of sternly where, you know, Jesus like, you know, scolding us and saying, stop that, you know. But another one is just kind of as an invitation. As, as compassionately, Jesus comes and says, you know, I love you. I'm, I'm here. You're not alone. And Jesus can say something with confidence. He can say, and it's going to be all right. I mean, how many times have you said that to people, but you don't even actually have the power to make sure that that's true? But Jesus actually does. And as a pastor over the years, I've, I've seen a lot of fear. I've dealt with a lot of fear. A um, couple of observations I make. These are in your notes um, in terms of fear. One is we often fear not getting what we want. That's something I see a lot as a pastor in conversations with people. Maybe, you know, I want to make the team, but I don't know if I will. I want to graduate, but I don't know if I'll have the grades. I want to get married. I want to get a job. I want to own a home. I find a lot of times people are afraid of not getting what they want. Now, here's another interesting thing I've seen a lot over the years, and that is people are often afraid of getting what they want and then losing it. You ever felt like that? Like, I got married, but what if I got the job, but can I keep it? I, we bought the house, but will we be able to make the payments? Or we had the child, but, right, what if? So sometimes we're, we get what we wanted. We were afraid we, didn't, we wouldn't get it. We got it, and now we're afraid of keeping it. Or sometimes we fear getting what we don't want, right? Maybe it's cancer. Maybe, maybe we got sued. Maybe we got a cat, you know, we didn't want it. Uh, and the fourth is that fear isn't always sinful, right? So it's not, for instance, Scripture says that we should fear God. We should have a healthy respect for God. A fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, of, of knowledge. If you're a soldier heading into battle, into warfare, fear might serve you well. If one of your kids gets a driver's license, you, you probably should be afraid. But see, here's the thing, in every fearful situation, in every fearful situation, we have an, it's, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to run to God or to run from God for help and comfort. So going back in the beginning of this situation, Jesus says this, and he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. Watch this. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your, your body, what you will put on. So he starts by saying, don't be anxious about your life which is kind of a big category for us. That's pretty much everything, right? So he kind of starts by saying, don't, don't be afraid about life. And we might say, well, okay, can you be more specific? And so he's going to be a little more specific. He says, for, for life is more than food. So there's food. He's going to, that's practical. We'll talk about that. And, and the body more than clothing. That, again, he's getting real practical for us. So let's think about food first. Would you say that food is kind of a big deal? I would. I highly recommend eating. And Jesus isn't saying don't eat, right? It's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is food can become this all-consuming kind of thing. Now, in that day, just contextually, very different from today. In that day, they would often be worried about maybe not where is lunch coming from, but they might be worried about where tomorrow's meals are coming from. That would not have been uncommon in, in that culture. And so part of what Jesus can see is if a disciple of his becomes worried, you know, where's, where's dinner going to come from? And then what's dinner is done. It's like, where's, where, what about breakfast? And what about lunch? It become the cycle of, of just being consumed by that. 
Today, it's a little different. We are not typically worried about where our next meal is going to come from. For us, it's, it's a different kind of obsession. We live in a day where there is an abundance of food and that can bring its own kind of challenge. In fact, Paul warned us against our stomachs becoming our God. Where, you know, maybe when we're happy, we reward ourselves with food. When we're stressed, we comfort ourselves with food. You know, that kind of cycle when things are going well, we celebrate and eat. When we don't, we don't. And, and it's where we almost kind of have a relationship with food, as one author said, that is more akin to the relationship we ought to have with God. Because it's just food. And we forget sometimes. Now, is it wrong to enjoy food? No, but don't expect food to give you what only God can give you. It's just, it's just food. And we live in a culture sometimes where we forget that. We forget it. And the body is more than clothing. So again, is Jesus saying it's, it's wrong to wear clothes? No, I highly recommend it. I'm glad all of us are clothed tonight, you know. But, but for many people, again, clothing becomes part of their identity. Just think about this, right? I know this is not your issue, but you probably know people like this, where, where the clothes they wear are part of their identity, where, where they've got to have the latest fashion trends and the colors and the labels because they think somehow that clothes reflect on them. But they're just clothes. They're just shoes and we forget they have a purpose to keep us covered and warm or cool or keep our feet from you know getting messed up on the on the on the path but they're just clothes and Jesus says don't 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 stress over food it's just food don't stress over clothes it's just they're just clothes so he encourages us at first just to expose let's start to think about this let's let's admit some of these things and then he goes on to say this We need to be those who examine, who look at, and we're using the word anxiety here for a minute because we we see the word worry, fear, anxiety. Now in verse 24 he says this, consider the, the, the ravens, that's a bird. They neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Now how much more value are you than the birds? So First of all, you got to admit, this is not something you typically read in an anti-stress self-help book, right? I've never read in a book like, hey, if you're feeling stressed, think about crows, you know? Um, think about this. Crows are, are related to ravens. They're scavengers. They're kind of nasty birds. They, they eat roadkill. And, and they're on, actually, in the Old Testament, they're on the list of unclean animals. And so it's interesting to me that Jesus says, if you're feeling stressed, you know, think about crows. They're, you know, they don't, so they don't, they're not, they don't reap. They don't sow. They're not farmers, in case you didn't know that. They don't, they don't store their food in lockers. They don't uh, freeze dry their stuff. They don't have little, you know, crow uh, Costco's where they go to if they run out of food and, and they're just kind of nasty birds and yet God feeds them, right? So if God's going to take care of a, you know, crow, I, I don't know, I don't know, there's not a lot of crows up here. I grew up where there are lots of crows. I just grew up hating, they're just noisy and squawky and, you know, and he's like, think about that. Like God takes care of a crow. What about you? You realize, of course, you were created in the image of God. You realize, of course, that Jesus came to die for you because you're of great value to him. So imagine what God would do for you. Think about that. And, and he says, and, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to, his, to the span of his life? 
Now, he's just saying there's no benefit to being anxious or stressed. It won't, it won't make you live longer. <laughs> we know that. God's designed our bodies in, in such a way that they often reflect our mental state. Have you noticed that? And, and, I, and, and I've noticed as a pastor over the years in a lot of counseling sessions, I've heard all sorts of things. I notice when people are stressed, there are certain things like oftentimes people say, I can't sleep. Ever felt like that when you're stressed? This, so this is what it, that mental stress produces something in the body. I can't sleep. Why can't you sleep? I, I'm worried. Constant fatigue is something you see. I know several people in our church who get canker sores when they're stressed, right? I'll be like, how are you doing? Oh, no, I'm fine. Right. <laughs> really? Are you? <laughs> uh, panic attacks, right? Um, what is it? That's the body responding to what's going on in the soul. People who can't be present in the moment because they're so stressed. People who start self-medicating with prescription drugs and alcohol, unhealthy eating, retail therapy. You ever seen that? Like, I'm stressed, I'm gonna go shopping. Constant sickness, stomach issues. Here's one I've dealt with several times over the last few years. Full-grown adults, adults with, in marriages with families, who will call me on the phone, I've had this happen several times in the last five years, who will call me on the phone and say, I'm, Pastor, I'm so stressed, I'm driving down the freeway right now, I'm driving down a highway, and I'm so stressed about my life, I'm thinking about just driving into oncoming traffic. A believer, so stressed. Studies are showing these, in, these links between long-term low-level stress and short-term memory loss. I mean, I'm just saying there are all sorts of downsides in the body to the stress in our heart and our mind. Jesus is just saying what, what doctors are just starting to figure out. Anxiety provides no benefit, no benefit for your life. So he says this in verse 26, if then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about all the rest? Now, the Bible tells us we are to live responsibly, we're to live wisely, we should make plans and all of that, but, but then there always comes a point where we must trust God with all the stuff that we don't control. Now, how much of your life would you say you don't control? <laughs> Which is really almost everything, right? Like, we don't like to think about that, but honestly, how much do we control? Like we can work hard at our job. We can, we could try to save money, but we don't control the economy and that can have a pretty big impact on us. We cannot control our loved ones. There's the illusion of that, but we don't honestly control them. We can love them and do our best, but we can't, we can't control them. We, we can exercise and eat right, but in the end, you understand you cannot control everything that goes on in your body. In fact, you probably can't really control most of it. Our job, again, we can, we can work hard, but there's so many things beyond our, our control in our job and in our, in our, in our business, the attitudes of others. You know, maybe you're sick and going through chemo and you can, you can do everything the doctor tells you to do, but there's still things out of your control. Now, we believe in a sovereign God, right? A God who rules and a God who reigns. And as believers, when we're stressed out, we're kind of acting like heretics. We're kind of acting faithless. 
We say that we believe in a God who once we do what we can do, we trust that he's in control, but we often don't think, feel, and act like that. But I love what Jesus does. He, he goes on in verse 27 and he says this. So consider the, the what? Right. Again, I've never read this in a, in a book about controlling stress, all right? Like, consider how they grow. They, they don't toil, they don't spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Not typical advice for anxiety. All right, you know, it, when you're stressed, Jesus is like, go to a pond and have some lily time. You know, like meditate, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it, some deep truth about lilies. Like Jesus is almost sounding like a hippie at this point, isn't he? Like, he's like, now think about lilies, right? They don't, they don't toil, they don't, they don't spend, they don't make their own clothes, they don't have lily clothing stores and fashion shows and they don't freak out about it. And yet when you see a lily, they look pretty awesome when you think about it. He says, in fact, even Solomon in all his glory with all his money that he had in all, in his, on his best day was not arrayed like a simple flower. In fact, that word lily is just actually a generic word for flower. Pick, pick your flower. And then he says this, but if God so clothes the grass. Now he, now he talks about, not even talking about a flower now, just grass, just green grass. If he so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, well, kind of, it's coming along. I mowed my lawn yesterday. It's, the grass is starting to grow, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. So back then, they would often gather grass when it would dry, and they would, they would burn it in a kiln, uh, sometimes to make bricks, to make pottery. It wasn't a big deal. They just gather it and burn it. He said, now, how much more will God clothe you? Oh, you have little faith. Ooh, that faith issue. Right? And then he says this, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. So he's not saying don't make reasonable plans, don't go to the grocery store. He's just saying stop obsessing about it. Stop stressing about it. Stop. <laughs> For all the nations of the world seek after these things. Right? That, you know what he's saying here. When you do that, you're just like everybody. Just like everybody else. Your father knows that you need them. So he says all the nations of the world seek this stuff because they're faithless. That's why they obsess. That's why they stress. That's why they're anxious. That's why they need prescriptions because they're faithless. They don't believe in a father who takes care of them. But we do. We trust in a father. And if we do, that means we live differently. We think, we feel we process differently. So, we expose it, we think about it, we go to the pond, we think about the lilies, and then he says, we do something. We do something. We call it exercising our faith, our trust in God. And again, now when most self-help books talk about how to deal with stress and anxiety and all this stuff, a lot of times what you hear is, well, you need to pay more attention to yourself and get to know yourself and love yourself and take care of yourself. And of course, you need to be a good steward of the body and the life that God has given you, absolutely. But don't miss the fact that Jesus points us in a completely different direction. Where oftentimes the world would say, when you feel stressed, you need to look in the mirror and think about you. Jesus actually says... I've got a different plan. 
Now this is, this is so different. You're not going to hear this out in the world, but Jesus says, here's my plan. Instead, right? So here's a different approach. Instead, seek his kingdom. That's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of your father. Seek his kingdom and these things, these things you worry about, you stress about, will be added. They will be given to you. And so Jesus is redirecting our focus. The world would say, focus on you. Think about you. It's all about you. Jesus says, hey, I've got a better plan for dealing with stress to redirect your focus away from yourself. Now just think about it for a moment. If your focus is all about yourself and you're honest, then what you're going to think about is your limited knowledge, your limited power, your very limited control, your limited abilities to solve your problems. And if you're realistic, you'll just have more fear and anxiety if you look at you. But if you focus on your father, it will alter the way you think about your problems. Which is why he says, ending where we started, fear not. Don't be afraid, little flock. That's a term of endearment. So Jesus isn't scolding you. If you're sitting here tonight and you're, you're scared, you're petrified, you're like, I can relate to the doctor, you know, I feel just like that. You understand that the tone of Jesus is to come down, sit next to you, put his arm around you and say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I love you. Now, it's easy sometimes to say, well, that's easy for Jesus to say, right? <laughs> Omnipotent, omniscient, immutable God. But you understand, Jesus knows what it's like to walk in your shoes. He knows what it's like. In fact, he knows what it's like more than we know what it's like. Jesus knows what it's like to have people malign your reputation. He knows it because he lived a perfect life and people told slanderous lies about him. You ever been afraid? Maybe somebody's talking about you on Facebook. You're not sure they are, but they might be. Jesus didn't have to imagine. People did it right in front of his face. He knows what it's like to have your family members disown you, to think you're nuts, to think they, they need to pull you out of society he knows what it's like to be single. He knows what it's like to be homeless. He knows what it's like to have someone that you love dearly steal from you, betray you, and then have so much guilt they wouldn't kill themselves. He knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to have friends you can't depend on. And when you, you need them when you're in a garden, when you're battling with stress and anxiety and you're on your knees and you're sweating drops of blood, they're sleeping. He knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to be unjustly accused. He knows what it's like to face torture and, and crucifixion and to bear the awfulness of sin he didn't even commit. He knows what that's like. So yes, when Jesus says, fear not, the point is, he knows, he knows what he's talking about. When dealing with your fear, he says, remember your father. Fear not, little flock, for it is, notice, your father's good pleasure. That is his pleasure. It's his, it's his joy. He loves doing it to give you the kingdom. He says, remember your father. I read a guy this week who said this, and that, this is beautiful. He said, remember your father because your theology results in your biography. 
right? See what that means? Your theology, what you believe about God, results in your biography. That is the story of your life. What you believe about God, your theology will determine your life story. And your father is a king. He is a king with a kingdom. In fact, not with just a kingdom, with, with the kingdom, with the eternal kingdom, with the growing kingdom, with the unstoppable kingdom, with the kingdom that will one day take over all, with the king who will rule over all, in all, through all. That's your king, that's your father, that's your savior. And here's what it says, he's given the kingdom to you. Think about that. That's your father. Jesus says, yeah, life is scary. He's going to say in other passages, yeah, in life you're going to have trouble. I'm not going to lie to you. It's going to be hard sometimes. But here's the thing. You'll be fine with your father. You'll be okay. Again, who else can make you that promise? Who else can tell you in any situation in life, it's going to be okay? Only God can do that. So you shift your focus from your fears to your father because he loves you, because he's good, he's generous, he's in charge, He's bigger than your fears. So, and this is where it gets great. Here's the application. So if you believe it, what do you do? Not just if you believe it, what do you do? If you want to believe it more, what can you do? It's not just descriptive, it's even kind of prescriptive. Like here's something you can do. Sell your possessions and give to the, to the who? To the needy. Wait, what about, wait. Wait, I'm, I'm stressed about money? I'm stressed about food? I'm stressed about clothes? And wait, Jesus is saying that I should give stuff away? Right? That would not be a New York Times bestseller list book, right? That doesn't sound like great advice. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. And then he says words I'm sure you're absolutely familiar with for where your treasure is there will your heart be also because you have been created and designed in such a way by your God that your heart follows your money now we've talked about this so many times I just want to point this out when we say that our heart follows our money let's just think about that for a minute what do we need for our heart what we need is a heart like Jesus. That's what we need. So let's just think at the end. Uh, what's the end game? The end game is to have a, a heart like our Savior. So what that means is instead of asking God to change your circumstances, which is what we often do, I need more clothing, I need more food, instead what Jesus says is what you really should be doing is asking God to change your heart. Your heart. Now consider Jesus' heart right? Jesus is up in heaven. He's a king. He's rich. He's worshiped. And humanity is spiritually dead and lost. And what does he do? He comes down from heaven. He lives in a body like ours. Why? Because his heart is for us. He's born into a poor family. He grows up poor. He has no home during his ministry years. He has no retirement plan, right? He's going to work until he's killed he 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 spent himself literally he spends his life on us 
He gives up his comfort in heaven. He gives up his time, his energy. He gives up his body. He gives up his life. In fact, he even gives up, if you will, his righteousness. He trades it. He takes on our sin and gives us his righteousness. Why would he do that? Why would he give up everything like that for us? Because of his heart. Because his heart is for you. Because he loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only son. So here's the thing. We love the heart of Jesus. And we should want the heart of Christ. We should want his heart reflected in us. A heart that is ruled by faith and not by fear. So again, when you go back to this passage, selling your possessions and giving to the needy, right? That's not a heart of fear. Only a heart of faith that trusts in its Father and his goodness can do that. A heart that's full of love. God wants you to have a heart that's generous and bold and fearless. And so here's this revolutionary strategy. Sell some of your stuff have a garage sale, put it on Craigslist, go to the ATM and get some cash, find someone who's needy, give them some money. They might be in your church, they might be sitting next to you, they might be across from you, they might live next door to you, they could be in the community, they might be on the street corner tomorrow as you're driving down the road with a sign. They might be unemployed. It might be a single mom you know. It might be somebody in the third world. told you last week we got a team of people going in about nine days to Nicaragua. And we're trying to raise about $10,000 to go down there and to invest there. And I think last weekend, like we just mentioned it last weekend, I think you guys gave almost $7,000 last weekend. So we're really close to being there, right? Yeah, that's cool. Somebody who's homeless, someone who's parentless. Jesus says, find them. They're not hard to find. Give them the gospel and give them some food. Give them some clothes. Give them a room to stay in. Foster parent them. Adopt them. Employ them. Share God's love with them. Have some coffee with them. Jesus says, live by faith. Don't live by your fear. If you live by your fear, you won't be able to do any of that because all you'll be thinking about is if I give something up, then I don't have it, right? That's fear. If I give you some money, if I give you some of my food, if I give you some of my stuff, then I won't have it. I'm afraid. But if you trust in your father, you won't be afraid. And what'll happen is you'll find out what happens when you live by faith, what God does to your fear, what God does to your anxiety, what God does to your heart what he does to your faith. I want to close by reading a story for you. Uh, This is from um, a book by Bob Goff. It's called Love Does. So here's the thing I always like to tell you about books when I read from books. So um, it's a really cool book. I would never read this book for theology ever. Um, But (laughs) just honestly. All right, but um, it's got some pretty cool stories in it. (laughs) So I want to read you one. This is, uh, I thought this is a good way to, to end. He says, when I was a kid, we used to play a game called Bigger and Better. Ever play that? You probably played the same game when you were young too. In this game, everyone starts with something of little value like a dime. And then everyone heads out into the neighborhood to see what they can trade it for. So you knock on people's doors and you ask if they're willing to trade something for the dime. And then you go to the next door with whatever you traded. And the goal is to come back with something bigger and, and, and better. And the bigger the thing is, the, the better. Now, my son Richard set out with a dime a while back. 
And he went to the first store in our neighborhood and he said, hi, we're playing bigger and better. And I've got a dime and I'm hoping to trade up for something bigger. Do you have anything you can trade me? Now, the guy at the door had never heard of this game. Nevertheless, he was immediately in and he shouted over his shoulder to his wife, hey, Marge, there's a kid here at the door and we're playing bigger and better. I love that he said we. Now, what do we have that's bigger and better than a dime? Richard walked away with a mattress. Now, (laughs) Rich went with his buddies to the next door and they knocked while Rich stood on the porch with his mattress. And the door opened and his muffled voice could barely be heard as he shouted through the Serta pillow top asking if his neighbor would trade him up for something that was bigger and better than a mattress. A little while later, he skipped away from the house having traded the mattress for a ping pong table. Richard wheeled the ping pong table to the next house and traded up for an elk head. How cool is that? An elk head. I would have stopped right there, but he didn't. He kept trading up, and by the end of the night, when Rich came home, he didn't have a dime or a mattress or a ping pong table or an elk head or the other five things he traded up. Richard drove home in a pickup truck. No lie. He started with a dime, and he ended with a dodge. Now, I remember reading this quote from C.S. Lewis where he said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and clothing and ambition when infinite joy has been offered to us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Well, he goes on and says this to close the story. Do you know what Rich did with that truck? He gave it away. He drove it to a church down the street and tossed them the keys. He didn't need it, didn't want it, and what he got in exchange for it was bigger and better still. While it was a good story to have traded up and gotten a truck, it was an even better story to have given it away in the end. And in the process, he got to serve God and bless someone by trading up in the way he lives his life. Although he started with just a dime, he walked away with a great example of how Jesus wants to use us in the world. Or... As Jim Elliott said, with words that are familiar to you, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray together.